And so we're looking now at the next part of our Exodus adventure. And we are reading from Exodus chapter 16 and the first ten verses. And they read like this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Now, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So, Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumblings against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening, and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumblings against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And we leave the story there. Have you ever thought how much easier it would be it would be to believe if God intervened and did something really dramatic, something indisputably miraculously God that you could touch and you could feel and you could see and you could tell your children about? Many of you, no doubt, will have had experiences of God intervening. But maybe, if you're anything like me, in the sort of tricky, dark moments, you think, really, was that really God? And I always thought that the people of Israel had all of that. If you were one of those Israelites who had seen the plagues... You had seen God so indisputably, obviously, miraculously intervening on your behalf over and over and over again, and then released and led to the edge of the Red Sea and seen those waters parted. Oh my goodness. You would have no doubt that this God was real, that he was powerful, that he was on your side. You would have stories to tell your children, your faith would be secure. 
right? Maybe not. You see, Miriam, I thought she got it. You know, the horse and the rider have been hurled into the sea. Let us sing songs to praise to our Lord. Absolutely, undeniably, indisputably God intervening on behalf of his people. And they leave and they go and they take that first step into all that God has promised for them. And in the desert, the whole community grumble against Moses and Aaron, and they say, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, for there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you, Moses, brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. And maybe the Israelites are a bit more like us. Maybe they're not so different from us. I I struggled to think, how can these things both be true? How can these people who've experienced this undeniable, undisputable power of God in the next step and with their next breath, saying we would have rather died in Egypt, (laughs) they grumble. And so... I think it's worth having a bit of a closer look at just those few verses to see these people maybe who are not so different from us, to see what do we learn from them. In the desert, the whole community, we don't find out very much about the individual Israelites, do we? I mean, later on, we, 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 we can get a bit of a census and we get kind of most of the heads of the families and most of the chief boys get named. But there's not really a sense of who all these people are. And, and if you were following the sermons earlier in the series, we're not really sure how many of them there were. The individual characters emerged into this whole community, into this people, which in many ways is brilliant and wonderful and as it should be. But equally, they are a little bit subject to what we might call groupthink. The whole community, all of them, as one, grumble. What a great word. Um, I looked this up because it's what you do when you're preparing a sermon. The Hebrew word for group grumble brilliantly is pronounced loon um, which is kind of interesting isn't it and it translates uh, as complaining or muttering or murmuring or grumbling whichever word you use it's certainly not great it has a sense of obstinacy it also has a sense of bearing a grudge it's very often particularly directed against somebody. And we see that in this passage, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So they didn't grumble against the Lord, who they were so willing to give their praise to, but they directed their grumbling and their complaints and their murmurings and their mutterings against Moses and Aaron, the leaders who, let's remember, were reluctant leaders to start with. They weren't people that had put themselves forward or claimed any kind of special gifts or uh, great vision. Moses particularly was a reluctant leader, and Aaron was just the brother of a reluctant leader, wasn't he? 
But they had been specifically called by God. And inasmuch as the people had chosen them, the people had endorsed God's calling on those leaders. And previously, the people positively encouraged Moses and Aaron. And yet now we see that their grumbling is directed against those leaders. And what do they say to them? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Feel the weight of that. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. What an awful thing to say. Some people um, feel very strongly that the words we say are really significant. Some people will talk about bringing curses upon yourself with the kind of weight of the words that you speak. Whether or not you want to go quite that far, I think it's true that you need to be careful with the words that you use because this kind of careless talk really dampens our spirit. Be careful what you wish for. Really, do the whole community of Israel really think they would rather have died in Egypt? That's quite extreme, isn't it? Rather than being set free or seeing the massive provision of the Lord or seeing the miracles or being released from slavery, they would really have rather died in Egypt. Heavy stuff. Because in their memory, they think, because there we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. I don't remember that bit in the beginning of the Exodus story. I don't know if any of you remember that bit when they were crying to be set free from generations of oppression and slavery. I don't remember them saying, hey, this is all right, we're sitting around, pots of meat eating, we've got everything that we want, it's all perfectly fine. But there's something that happened to the people of Israelites as they made that first step out into the desert and it's something that happens to people through generations and probably even happens to us We have rose-tinted hindsight. Rose-tinted hindsight. A false memory of how things were better in the olden days, or better before, or better in some other mythical age. And for the Israelites, the whole community apparently remember sitting round in Egypt, happily enjoying pots of meat and eating all the food that they wanted. And that's the story that they seem to have created for themselves about the past that they've come from. Pretty dangerous stuff. And then they blame Moses. You, Moses, brought us out into this desert. And I think at this point, if I was Moses, I would be thinking, do you know what? I would really have rather just carried on being a prince, to be honest, because this has kind of started to cause quite a lot of bother. (laughs) This whole, you know, plagues and slavery and... Um, being chased by Pharaoh's chariots and being hassled by the people and being faced down by God and having to do all this stuff that I really wasn't up for. And now you're blaming me. The people of Israel, the whole community, say to Moses, you brought us out in this desert to starve the assembly to death. And again, I don't remember that being... Moses' intention. I don't think he planned. I don't think his great plan was, I know I'm going to set these people free so they can starve in a desert. I don't think that was his plan. And I don't think really, if you'd have asked any of the individuals whether they really thought that of Moses, he would have, they would have answered positively. But as a whole community, they have talked themselves into this lie that Moses has decided to lead them out to let them starve to death in a desert. 
And actually, the call of God was very different and very specific. You remember when Moses went to Pharaoh, he said, let my people go so that they can worship me in the desert. The reason they were there wasn't to die, it was to worship. But they'd got a bit distracted by their own grumbling, and they'd forgotten why they were there. So I wonder, if I may be a bit cheeky, to ask you, how are you doing on the kind of Christmas grumbling scale, if there was a a scale, to unbridled joy, to full-on grumpy Scrooge grumbling. Where are you on the sliding scale of Christmas grumbling? My grandmother, who has now departed, uh, would start most times when you asked her how she was, she had this brilliant phrase, well, I mustn't complain, which generally was a prelude (laughs) to some complaints. I mustn't complain. Um, Have you noticed our tendency to turn things that should be real blessings into chores? We kind of moan about having to buy the Christmas dinner and organise the presents and really miss the fact that we're rich enough to do these things. We moan about having to clean a house without remembering that we're lucky enough to have one. So do we fall into this pattern Do we fall into the pattern of these Israelites? I think we do, because I think we're not so different from them. I think it's very easy if all the people around us start grumbling just to join in. I think it's very easy if the whole community feels that Christmas is a bit of a burden, or something's gone wrong, or there's something they're not happy about. But it's quite easy to join in with that. It's quite hard to stand against it. It's quite easy to blame people that lead us when maybe we should take our responsibility for ourselves a little bit more seriously. I think it's very easy, like the Israelites, to be drawn into being overly dramatic. I wish we had all died in Egypt. Without really being careful not to wish away our situation. Do we have rose-tinted hindsight Do we look to an imagined past? And maybe we forget all the trials and tribulations and the tricky things and the things that we didn't really like very much at the time and remember how wonderful everything was. And do we need somebody maybe just to remind us, like I would remind the Israelites if I had the opportunity, that the main thing about being in Egypt wasn't eating pots of meat. There was actually quite a lot of bad stuff that you've probably forgotten about. And most worryingly of all, do we fail to see God's provision? Or do we fail to see God's plan because we're so wrapped up in our own grumbling? The people of Israel said, you've led us out into this desert to die. When God had very specifically said, I'm leading you out into the desert to worship. They missed God's plan and God's purpose and God's provision because they were grumbling. So let me ask you this. If you were Moses and you were on the receiving end of this rant, how would you respond to this grumbling? How would you respond? In my mind's eye, I am conjuring phrases such as, you ungrateful lot, possibly a little stronger, You may be feeling, why do I bother? (laughs) Being a prince was quite a nice life. I gave it all up for you, and this is the thanks that I get. Phrases like that. 
But of course, they're not actually complaining against Moses, are they? They are complaining against God. So how do we think God reacts? Do you ever grumble against God? In our house group recently, we've been working through the Psalms and we found the grumbles against God in the Psalms actually quite enjoyable and quite liberating and realizing it's okay to grumble against God sometimes and it's good to be honest and it's good to bring all your complaints to him. So I'm not saying don't ever do this. But particularly in the context of this situation of all that God has done for this group of people, how do we think he responds when they present these complaints? Think about taking your complaints, your obstinacy, your grudges that you bear and presenting them to the Father. How do you think he will respond Well, I guess how you think he will respond tells you a lot about what you know of God the Father and what your relationship with him is like. For a long time, I thought that God would basically just be cross with me all the time and that he would really not want me to present grumbles or complaints, that he wouldn't approve of that. But what does God do? What does God say? In verse 4, in response to the grumbling, God says... I will rain down bread from heaven. He doesn't even address the complaints. He makes known his provision. He just says, I'm going to give you some more stuff. And also, because he's a very good parent, and maybe he didn't read the books on parenting, but he turns this moment into a teaching moment, if you've read those parenting books. Um, And he says, I'm not just going to give you this bread. I'm actually going to give the bread in a way that teaches you something. Um, I'm going to test you. So uh, God says in verse 5, in this way, I will test them and I will see whether they will follow my instructions. For on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And God was teaching them about rest and about Sabbath and about provision and about trust and about his character And he was just again and again and again gently saying, I go with you. I will provide for you. But there's more. And with God there often is. In verse 7, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. And the subtitle for this sermon is Grumbling and Glory. The people grumble and God shows up with his glory Um, And the glory can mean the presence of the Lord, it can mean an abundance, it can mean riches, it might be the same as the actual provision of the bread, or it might be something more. And specifically and amazingly, in verse 7, we read, In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumblings against him. What an amazing God. That in response to the complaints and the grumbling, he makes provision and he displays his glory. This is remarkable. This is upside down kingdom logic. This is perfect love. This is God's character. Um, The people grumble. God hears them. He provides and he shows them his glory. This is not a one-off. This is not a glitch 
in the system. This is God's character. This is how he works. He is a remarkable, upside-down, perfect love kind of a God. His character here is exposed. And it's a truth and it's a pattern that's replicated throughout the Old Testament. We see it time and time again. The people grumble. God hears them. He turns up. He provides for them. They see his glory. David, Ezekiel, Job, Abraham, Hannah, Samuel. They cry out to God. They bring their complaints to God. God hears them. And God responds with provision and glory. But the history of the Old Testament is that as often as this amazing God behaves in this way, sooner or later, God's people turn away again. In Acts 7, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin in that beautiful speech where he lays out the whole of the history of God's people, he says that God's people refuse to obey God. Instead, they reject him, and in their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. That's what they did, wasn't it? It was better then. They turn away from God. And so Isaiah prayed this prayer that God would rend the heavens and come down. Literally, that God would do more than just look down but that he would come down, that he would break the great divide. And Isaiah wasn't alone. It was the cry of many of the prophets and the cry of many individuals right up to this day. Our hearts cry, God, you seem so far away and things seem so broken. Would you come down and intervene? And you know what? God hears and God responds And in this Advent season, it's a great time to remember that what he does is he provides and his provision is Jesus and he comes in glory. So this Advent, let's be careful not to get caught up in the communal grumbling or to get distracted by grudges that we hold against each other. Let's not miss the splendor of the hope set before us because we are so focused on our rose-tinted rearview mirrors. Let's not fail to see God's provision. Let's open our eyes. We read this morning, we prayed together, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. God has heard us. God has provided. His son has come as saviour to a broken world. He comes in power. He comes in glory. His presence is sufficient to heal every wound and wipe away every tear. So I have stolen shamelessly from a resource that David recommended. And we found this Advent Creed, which I think is really beautiful. And it's an opportunity to quiet our hearts or to put aside our grumbling, if you think that applies to you, but mostly to make space to see the provision of God and the glory of God. And I'd say, if you haven't met Jesus yet. If you're one of those people whose heart is crying, God, you seem so far away, why don't you intervene? God has heard you and God has provided for you. And you might want to use this prayer as a response to him. So if you're happy, let's say this all together. We believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, the one who is full of patience, who is not afraid of silence. 
who does not need to fill each moment with activity and noise, the one who is beyond bluster and flurry and who does not jostle for attention. We believe in God the Son, Saviour of creation, who slipped into Bethlehem one night, mostly unnoticed, who lived 30 years without headlines or hurry, who frequently took time alone with his patient father, who waited for the right time to become the suffering servant, who stood quietly before the noise of his accusers, whose silence overpowered their words, who died and then rose again on a quiet Sunday morning. We believe in God, the Holy Spirit, who strengthens, empowers, renews and refreshes, sometimes arriving with obvious power, sometimes with the quiet breath of a whisper. We believe in one God who patiently waits for us and who longs for us to do the same. Amen.